we'll read uh, a couple of sections to get us into um, what is, in fact, one coherent whole between uh, the beginning of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 11, that we're going to do it in uh, over two weeks because it's just too big a chunk otherwise. But I'm going to read, uh, start reading from chapter 8. When he, that is the Lamb, who sits upon the throne, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet. There came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. But as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts that are about to be sounded by the other three angels. We're going to look at uh, uh, the fifth and sixth trumpets as well, but I want just uh, to start our time to jump straight to the seventh, which is all the way over in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were wrathful, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, your servants and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake. 
and a great hailstorm. I think we need God's help to help us understand that, don't we? Let's pray. We know, Lord, that all Scripture is uh, breathed by you, that every part of it is for our instruction, that every part is for our enlightenment. And so, Lord, though sometimes the images of Revelation are forbidding to us, we come to these images with confidence that you will help us and that we will understand you and your world more clearly as we seek to understand uh, this passage of Scripture. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, come amongst us. Open our eyes, we pray. Warm our hearts from their cold state. Strengthen our wills that we would be people who understand and feel and respond as you want us to. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know about you, but I have a, um, a bit of a love-hate relationship with those speed cameras on the road. There's a few knowing smiles here. So on the one hand, I, I think that they're a great idea, actually. As a father of small children, I often find myself quite anxious and sometimes angry when I see some boy racer driving down the road at high speed along the very roads that my children walk along. And I, I want there to be some enforcement of the speed limit to protect us all. But when I get behind the wheel... I find myself regarding those little dark grey boxes as sort of silent enemies waiting there to catch me out. I remember driving late at, at night once in a, in a sort of semi-dream and as I uh, entered a, uh, a built-up area there was a sudden flash and I realised that one of those speed cameras had photographed me. I won't tell you the speed I was going. And... Um, Every morning for the next two weeks, I picked up the post with a distinct twinge of anxiety waiting for the fine notice. It actually never came. It was another of those cameras with no film in it. Since then, I have to say that I'm actually a little bit less intimidated by those uh, uh, technological police. As, as happens with, with every lawbreaker who's not caught, you start to think that you yourself are immune from it, that uh, we will never be prosecuted, that there is uh, uh, no day of reckoning. I think that incident helps us to understand something uh, very, very important about the human condition. You see, we need sanctions to keep us on the straight and narrow. We need, actually, punishments. It would be nice to think that you just needed to explain to people how dangerous it is to drive beyond the speed limit and they would instantly obey, but it doesn't happen, does it? So um, uh, by inflicting limited and controlled misery in the form of fines and uh, points on our licences, Society as a whole protects itself from the far greater misery that would be caused if everybody just drove at the speed that they feel like. There are 3,000 deaths a year on our roads. 
and a very large proportion of them are caused by, caused by reckless driving. Now this morning we're going to see that actually God does something very similar to that in the way that he governs the world. Now, perhaps we think that God only needs to explain to us, to sort of sit us down and, and show us how the dangerous consequences of our human folly and uh, we would obey him. Perhaps we might think that, but it's not true, is it? It doesn't happen on the roads. Why should it happen in any other sphere of life? Perhaps we, uh, we think that um, uh, what God can do is give us repeated warnings in Scripture of his, uh, of his judgment. But then uh, uh, in the small print we learn that those are, those are actually never, never going to be enforced. But they're just uh, there to scare us without any teeth behind them. But you see, as I discovered when I uh, didn't get a fine notice through my door, empty threats ultimately become completely useless in helping us to, uh, to, save our, uh, to save us from ourselves. If warnings never become a reality, then we cease to believe that there is any, any way that, that uh, our sins are going to catch up on us. See, this passage this morning is designed to shock. Pretty shocking as we read it, and it gets more shocking in, uh, in chapter 9. It's, uh, in fact, like those horrific drink-driving adverts that we have uh, seen on the television over the last few years. The images are based, in fact, in Revelation, like those adverts, but uh, they are carefully manipulated to help us to see in a very powerful way the dangers that there are in this world. Who of us can forget that, that advert with the little girl just saying repeatedly, you are going to kill me, you are going to kill me. Well, Revelation, this passage in Revelation is a bit like that. It is a warning, a vivid warning to us that we need to take very seriously if we are to be saved from ourselves. But we need to set the scene, don't we? Especially, I, I mentioned at the beginning, there are a number of people who haven't been here. We need to understand what's been going on up to now. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation described God's throne room. And they there we saw God was ruling over all of his creation. And we saw in chapter 5 that, uh, in fact, God has perfect plan of judgment and forgiveness that he wants to fulfill. And that Jesus' death on the cross qualifies Jesus to start unfolding that plan. Because he died to save us from our sins because he enables God both to judge evil and to forgive his people, because Jesus in himself has taken our sins on his shoulders, so God's purposes for the future can roll forward. And we saw that depicted in chapters 6 and 7 in terms of a scroll being slowly opened as the seven seals on that scroll, each one by one, is, uh, is broken. And uh, we saw that that process is actually very painful. 
We said last week that the world is a mess. The horror of the world is only ameliorated by the firm assurance that God will protect his people. His people will not be eternally lost. He has sealed them with a mark on their foreheads of ownership. But then finally it seems that uh, all of that horror that uh, chapter 6 especially explored has come to an end and the last of these seven seals is broken. We read about it. When he, chapter 8 verse 1, the Lamb, opened the seventh seal, the Lamb of course is Jesus, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The, The drama of that moment is quite extraordinary. If you read through, up to that moment, uh, everything has been incredibly noisy. You know, there have been angels with, with voices like thunder. There have been horses galloping by. There have been souls of people who have been martyred, crying out to God, how long? There have been other people who have rejected and disobeyed God, crying out to mountains to fall upon them. There has been an innumerable throng crying out in a loud voice. And now, when finally the last seal is opened, there is silence. Silence for half an hour. Not a contrived silence. This is a silence of speechless wonder. This is the silence of unspeakable awe. This is the silence of of wordless joy. This silence goes on and on and on because people are utterly astounded and satisfied that God finally has completed his purposes. Well, surely now at the end of chapter 7 or chapter 8, verse 1, John has seen it all. Surely this is the end of the book. Surely there is nothing more to say. Looks very like it, actually. The the New Testament says that the very last moment before Jesus comes again will be heralded by a trumpet. And lo and behold, here are seven trumpets. Verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. But then it starts to become horribly clear that John has not yet seen all that there is to see. There is more to be said yet. As each of the seven trumpets is sounded, in many ways they are actually going over the same ground that the seven seals have, come, uh, have covered. But now they are going to show us the world from a slightly different perspective. In Old Testament times, trumpets were used as a sound, as a sound of warning, as an announcement of something that was going to happen, like a modern fanfare. In the New Testament, we uh, uh, are told that there will be a last trumpet. Well, that last trumpet, in fact, is sevenfold. There are seven great uh, uh, warnings, announcements to us that God is going to come. They are warnings of the terrible consequences of rejecting God. And so they start to uh, sound. And the first four trumpets that we read about bring uh, hail and fire and blood and, and darkness on the sea and the land and the rivers and the sea creatures and the ships. 
John had read his Old Testament. John knew that uh, plagues like this fell on Egypt. When Moses went down to the evil Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Only this time, John says it is worse. These plagues come over the whole world. These plagues uh, 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 destroy the, the sea and sea creatures. Pharaoh, you see, was given each one of those uh, plagues as a warning to him. Again and again, Moses went back to Pharaoh and said, if you do not repent and let my people go, there will be a last great plague that will come upon you. And this next one is a warning of that. And again and again, Pharaoh failed to, to repent. These, these plagues actually uh, stand back and fall short of the last great plague that came upon Egypt when all the firstborn sons were killed. Because still in these first uh, four trumpets, we are in the phase of solemn warning. C.S. Lewis said that uh, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Each of these trumpets is like a megaphone. It is sounding a warning. But the warning has not yet become clear enough. There is more to come. Verse 13 of chapter 8. As I watched, I heard an eagle that it was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And so the fifth trumpet is sounded. And the warning, if anything, becomes more focused and more intense. Do you see that in chapter 9? The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. And the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth. And they were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. The agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. See, in John's mind, locusts were a terrible plague. They could come upon a land and consume all the vegetation in that area in one day. But these locusts are told not to touch the vegetation. No, they, neither do they touch the Christians, those who have the seal of God on their, their heads. No, they create an agony for people which comes from the abyss, which comes from hell. As they uh, approach, we read in uh, verses 7 and uh, onwards, they have all the agility and the power of horses. They appear to have royal authority. They wear golden crowns. They, they have human faces. 
They have beauty, long hair like women, but they are ferocious with lion's teeth. They are absolutely impregnable with breastplates of iron. They are unstoppable like an army of chariots, and they are vicious with scorpions' tails. And they have a ruler, the prince of hell himself, the devil, or as he's called here, the destroyer. Does this look so terrible that it must be some future plague, do you think? See, I fear it's not. Now, this is the plague which right now torments millions of people worldwide who don't know Christ. There is almost a beauty and a fascination about these uh, locusts, but in the end, they torment people. They torment people so ferociously that they long for death. And these are the forces at work when a naive youngster starts popping a few E's and finds himself uh, in a few years lashed by the vicious sting of drug abuse. People are dying at young ages in this city, in this part of this city, within a few hundred yards of this church because of that torment. Now, these forces are at work when a married person becomes entranced by the alluring idea that they deserve a better mate. They find out too late that deserters end up deserted. Now, these powers are at work when someone, even when someone devotes themselves to the dream of a good job, of house, a wealth and wealth, and then finds out far too late in their life that it was all a waste of time because in finding those things they had lost their soul. Now the author uh, Jack Higgins, who wrote The Eagle Has Landed, was once asked what he knew now that he did not know when he was a boy, when he was a young man. And he said, when you get to the top, there is nothing there. You know, there is plenty of this sort of agony, of the agony of the fifth trumpet, playing itself out in people's lives in Oxford. People who toy with the thought of death, even, because their life has become such a misery. And it is at the instigation of that most malicious of foes, the devil. And yet, you know, it is also one of God's trumpet calls to mankind. It is also one way in which, which God wants to, to call to us about the horrors of the powers that oppose him. He allows some freedom, though he limits the, these locusts. 
in, the, in, the, in what they do. He allows them some freedom because we must see the real power, the real malevolence, the real horror of the, the spiritual realm that is opposed to him. He says to us, can't you see the malice and hostility of the evil one into whose hands you are placing yourself? And yet, John tells us, there is more yet. The sixth angel must sound his trumpet. Chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury." See, the river, river Euphrates was, uh, was on the boundary of the Roman Empire, and, and beyond that was a very feared, warlike race, the Parthians. The Parthians uh, fought by using cavalry bowmen to great effect and had defeated the Romans on a number of occasions. So John uses that imagery to evoke a deep fear in these people. You know, if he, if he was writing today, he might, uh, and if he was given the vision today, he might have seen 200 million tanks driving in formation across Europe. And he said, these creatures kill. Now, one thing is for certain, at the, 20, at the end of the 20th century, we don't need to doubt the power of godless ideologies to kill, do we? Not after the pogroms of uh, Stalinist Russia, not, not after the gas chambers of uh, Nazi Germany, where they laughed and sneered at people they called God-lovers. Not after the massacres of Rwanda. Now, in one city in Rwanda that I read this week, they trapped... Thousands and thousands of Tutsis, mainly women and children, in a stadium. And then they simply waded into them with clubs and machetes, massacring them like baby seals on a beach. But there were so many of them that they couldn't kill them all in a day. So they sealed off the stadium, they went home, they had a night's sleep, they got up and had breakfast and they went back and killed the rest. That's the world we live in. That's the world in which occasionally, just occasionally, the full malice and murderous intentions of the devil shows itself. 
and then we are shocked. You know, in the past, very often Christianity of a sort of rather debased sort was, was, a, was associated with such atrocities. And so it was possible for people, and many people said it, that it was the Christian religion partly that had been the cause of the problem. But if ever a century has blown that myth apart, it is the 20th century. The great murders in the 20th century have explicitly and overtly rejected all Christianity. in favour of the hellish power of atheism or nationalism or tribalism. Why does God allow it? Well, you know, that is a very deep and painful question and the Bible comes back to it again and again and uh, gives us only partial answers. But one partial answer is found here. God must force the devil to show his hand in this world. He must alert us to the hostile power of the devil before it is too late, before, in fact, we die and find ourselves eternally in his grasp. He must show us, like those, those crashed cars that they now leave beside the roadside with police aware written all over it to help us to realize that real fatal accidents do happen. So God allows these things to happen to warn us what is going on in this world. This is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Will you listen? Do you know there is a still deeper tragedy that unfolds at the end of chapter 9? It is this. By and large, even with this, these clear displays of the malice of the devil before us, People do not repent. Verse 20. The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, that were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. It actually, within the context of this, uh, uh, this vision, is utterly ridiculous, isn't it? How is it that people who are exposed again and again to the hostile power of the devils still turn away from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, to worship the devil. See, one reason I suspect is that people just don't see it. Now, there was a poll I was told about last week to find Britain's most popular song, and it turned out to be John Lennon's Imagine. I love that song in many ways. It's got a great tune. And it captures a vision of peace and harmony which is very deeply attractive. No war, no racial division, no anger. 
But you see, John Lennon was convinced that that vision could only be realized if there was no heaven above, no hell below, no religion. And uh, this last Friday, they played that song, because it's Britain's most popular song, to uh, my children in the assembly that I attended. And I sat there thinking, the peasants' revolt in Russia was fueled by that dream. And they got Lenin and Stalin. The Khmer Rouge were fueled by that dream. And they got Pol Pot and the killing fields. And that dream is still a popular dream in this country. Somehow people will not turn to the only person who can bring about what John Lennon longed for. They will not turn to Jesus. They will not turn to the one who offers comfort and rest and life. They would rather stay with forces that in the end bring torment and death. Oh, but I hear you say, you're being far too melodramatic. You've, you've, you've caught this imagery and it's just taken you over. Certainly, you say, there are a few extremists around the world that uh, cause these terrible problems. But we live in a moderate country. Now, I have to say, I don't think we realise to what extent the stability and moderation that our country has enjoyed for centuries now has been largely down to the influence of Christians. Peter Guy listed some of the medical achievements from right back down into, uh, down into the 11th century. And, uh, and that could be repeated in area after area after area. It has been Christians who have been active, Christians who have pricked the nation's conscience, who have kept those false ideologies from showing their full ferocity. But you see, I think we are starting to see in this country the full destructiveness of non-Christian views of the world becoming quite uh, uh, more and more clear. Over the last 30 years or so, we've toyed actually with John Lennon's vision. We have begun to uh, abandon any idea that God can wisely tell us how to live our lives. We've begun to dismantle the family. We have abandoned uh, traditional sexual morality. We've encouraged uh, abortion on demand and so on and so on. And just to voice those things today labels you as an old-fashioned reactionary. And yet I have to tell you that the attractive, trendy, forward-thinking people who have shaped our society over the, over the last 30 years have been leaving behind them a quiet carnage which is itself old-fashioned. We are seeing a rise of things that we have not seen in this country for Generations, sometimes even centuries. Do you know the average length of a marriage in this country is now about 10 years? It hasn't been that short since the beginning of the 19th century when marriages were that short because of the death 
of a parent, not because that parent chooses to walk out on the children. Oh, there are encouraging signs, but I would say to you that every encouraging sign that there is in this country is because people have been persuaded of one principle or other that Jesus himself taught. They may not themselves be Christians, but the good things that happen in this world come because people are persuaded of the wisdom that God and Jesus Christ have given us. If you're not a Christian this morning, then, take that very, very seriously. I want to ask you, will you buck the trend? Will you dare to be your own person? Or will you follow the uh, generality of people who still will not repent? Now, most people who are not Christians think of themselves in this whole drama as innocent bystanders. They accept that maybe there, there are destructive false ideologies out here. But, but I, I, I stand by and watch it, they say. I do the best that I can. You know, there is no such thing in this world as an innocent bystander. We are either disciples of Jesus who are following his way, or we are willingly or unwittingly caught in the whole web of forces which are opposed to him. You know, when the Allied forces uh, relieved Belsen concentration camp at the end of the Second World War, they found that that concentration camp stood on the edge of a middle-class suburb of ordinary German people. The stench from the camp drifted over their houses. The Allies were so furious that these people had just ignored this that they forced the people to come up to the camp and to walk around and to look at the bodies, to look at the emaciated survivors, to look at the personal possessions of thousands of people who were dead and gone, piled high. People were sick. People cried uncontrollably. People, people reacted with the most vehement self-justification. They said they were nothing to do with this. But the Allies were absolutely adamant. They had smelt the smell, they said. They were responsible. John is making us do the same, you see. He's making us pick through the carnage of those locusts. He's making us to look at the death caused by those horses so that every single one of us knows that we are part of that battle and we cannot be innocent bystanders. The question then remains with us. Will you buck the trend? Will you stand up and speak for Jesus? Will you submit your life to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, 
the only one who wants to rule us for our benefit. And sooner or later, the end will come. The seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, will be sounded. And perfect justice will ensue. Then we will find that uh, uh, the, there are loud voices in heaven, as chapter 11 says, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Then we will find that there is perfect justice. The nations were angry or wrathful, and your wrath has come. The, those who destroy, verse 18, are destroyed. God must do that. God will do that. The question is, whose side we are on when he does it? Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we reel at the imagery of uh, these verses and more so as we see how true they are. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, every single one of us, and that you would call us to repentance. For those of us here who already know you and love you, Lord, we pray nevertheless that you would, you would uh, steal us more firmly to walk at your side, to speak and act for you. Lord, for those of us who don't yet know you, who maybe up to now have felt that we stood on the edge of this. I pray that you would help us make the decision that we need to make. Stand with Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Seriously examine yourself and sense your need. You haven't discovered the willingness that Christ has to people who go to him to forgive. And I urge you to do it soon. Do it now. Because this world is a messy place. Because this world is a tragic place. And because one day Jesus will judge every single sin. Only those who have had their sins placed on Jesus' shoulders can be assured of salvation. Oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would come to each one of us this morning. 
and that first of all you would open our eyes as John's eyes were open to the terrible drama that is working itself out on this earth. We catch glimpses of it, Lord, again and again when we see uh, tragedies and disasters. But then we forget that these are the large-scale consequences of our sin. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us a realistic assessment of this world and of our place in it. And then, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us in our hearts with sincerity to seek your forgiveness and to enjoy the assurance that comes from knowing that your seal is placed upon us. Please, Lord, we pray for each one of us here. Give us that new life that comes from being clothed in white robes. Give us that assurance that we will be amongst that innumerable throng. For those who are so not yet there, Lord, help us to take that step clearly and positively and to follow you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.